Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Three people and you're going to have four weeks to do something. <laughs> it started out of pure stubbornness, which is great. <laughs> Without necessarily meaning to, I think we found this quite interesting niche. No, we did some stuff, and the fact that it's invisible means it works. <laughs> I think art is encoded knowledge and uh, experience. At that time, we were really fascinated by the whole transmedia concept. That was it, not the time-travelling robot idea that we had. Hello, I am Sam Fry, and this is Technique, the podcast where we talk to artists about technology. Today is episode 49, which means that we are close to episode 50, where we will be making some exciting changes. Look out for those. But first, today we have an equally exciting episode, as I was able to interview a fantastic artist that is based in Brooklyn, New York. The artist is Eric Foreman. If you don't know much about him already, here he is introducing his practice. I'm Eric Foreman. I'm an artist working with interactive technology. I make a whole range of work ranging from super tiny things to giant outdoor installations. Usually the stuff I make is concerned with using new technology, not being obsessed by it, but using it to change how we think about perception and reality. I spoke to Eric towards the end of 2020 via a video call. I found him to be really engaging as an artist who has lots of experience in the world of art, design, architecture, and of course, technology. He is also a former philosophy student, which we touch on a little bit too. So I'll jump into the interview, which started with me asking Eric about how he got into the arts. My background, I think like many artists, is really non-traditional meaning I didn't even go to art school in the formal sense. Um, I did get a graduate degree at an art program that was concerned with creative use of new technology, but it wasn't a fine arts program. So for me, my own journey, which like many artists was meandering and confused and contradictory, uh, actually started out studying philosophy. So in my undergraduate career, many, many years ago, I made an independent major at my university that was about how computer technology would change traditional philosophical arguments and specifically about virtual reality. So this was back in the mid-90s, 94, 95. So I was writing theoretically about it. I had always made art on the side since I was a kid, but I didn't really take it seriously. I, I was more like, surely you can't do something for a living that's fun. You know, that's like a hobby kind of thing. But as I got older, I realized more and more I could combine creative pursuits with professional pursuits. And although I loved the academic world and writing about technology and theory, I thought it was really important to really understand the, the tangible craft behind what I was theorizing about, which in the case of virtual reality was 3D modeling, animation, computer programming. A lot of theorists who were writing about it, I mean, a lot. There was only maybe three or four in the world at that time, but they were philosophers and hardly ever made stuff themselves. 
So I thought to really know what I'm talking about and also to appeal to a wider audience besides the 10 other philosophers who might read a journal or something that I should start making things myself so I could give a more nuanced analysis of what the effects could be and not overhype it or, or even underestimate it either way. So from there, I started getting into 3D animation and programming, and I worked at a company, an, an early legendary kind of infamous dot-com called Pseudo that was in New York City in the mid-90s that created the first online entertainment. They were doing streaming audio and video way before their time. We also were trying to make a virtual reality environment that would be like a competition to television in a very twisted and strange way that never quite worked, but was fascinating to be a part of. And after that, I decided, how can I combine my interest in philosophy and theory, thinking about how technology and humanity are affecting each other, not just humans affecting the evolution of technology, which has been obvious for many millennia of our tools getting more and more advanced, but now our tools were affecting humanity itself and the rules of evolution were themselves evolving because of the pressure of technology, the selection pressure among other things. So I wanted to keep that in mind conceptually, but I also wanted to combine it with the joy of making things. And that meant making work with technology, realizing, which is quite obvious, of course, that it's, it's only designed to do a narrowly constrained set of things. So output devices are generally two-dimensional rectangles of monitors, and input devices are like keyboards and a mouse you move around with one hand. So if you wanted to do something different or artistic with it, then you had to learn how to make your own technology. And that's when I decided to go back to graduate school, which was in 2000, and study more so-called creative technology and physical computing, which is making circuits and sensors and responsive code and of creative experimentation without needing to be an engineer, but basically studying engineering kind of in a weird self-taught way so that you could create new experiences. I just happened to be reading something today, actually, around that exact notion of by making, you are, you're putting yourself through a thinking process. Obviously, you uncover how things work better, but actually it expands your way of thinking about things? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's it's critical to anyone making anything. I mean, it doesn't just have to be an art, but, but so-called praxis, which is kind of like theory and practice combined, is something that is essential, I think, to any, not just making, but also problem solving. You so often are stuck on, on a particular problem. It could be in industrial design, doesn't need to be art. It could be in biology, whatever. And you keep thinking and thinking and studying and researching and, and writing, but it's not until you do something that things happen. You realize even when it fails, which it usually does, oh, what if I change this? Or it gives you a new idea or it helps you see something in a new way. That's just a critical part of almost everything in the world and certainly a critical part of pedagogy too for all, all teachers will always encourage that kind of thing. Just, just if you're not sure, just try and see what happens. So you, you go back to study and you do more of a kind of arts-based course, I guess. What was the journey from there to recognizing yourself as an artist? Yeah, well, it's an interesting question. 
because many artists, myself included, are never sure when they become a quote unquote real artist. And some you go your entire life without being sure. And I think that's a good thing. You should always be questioning yourself. And for me, although when I finished graduate school in 2002, I did say to myself, okay, I'm going to open a studio and try to be an artist. But in order to do that, I had to, of course, make money. So at first I was working with a lot of clients doing creative technology, uh, like interactive experiences for clients. And basically that becomes your whole life because if you want to do a good job and impress your clients, you work all the time. So there's a certain point, and every artist goes through this, where you have to decide what is the balance between work and art. They can try to be adjacent and support each other, but it's very easy to have the work part take it over. So although I said, okay, I'm going to try to be an artist in 2002, I didn't really become an artist until at least six years later, probably six years of meandering and waffling and trying to do stuff in my spare time and working at night and on weekends. And uh, most importantly, realizing finally that I was giving away my creative energy to the professional work. And so when I did have time to be in the studio, I was burnt out already. And that's when I made a critical decision for myself that it wasn't a good idea to do something professionally that was so close to my art making. It seemed like that was the coolest thing you could do for money, make something that is at least has something to do with it. But actually, for me, that was a mistake because it meant I had nothing left for my own work. So when I started turning down client work, doing other things for money, like being a teacher and a professor and uh, other kind of consulting work, but not making creative technology stuff, then... I really could focus on my own craft, my own practice. And that's when my career really started to develop. I was looking at your Instagram before, and one of the projects I guess was around then, so we're talking around 2008, was a telephone that if you pick up, it plays different sounds, kind of recorded sound. What kind of work were you working on at the time? Maybe Yeah, that's, about that's that a perfect example. So... That particular project that I, I just recently posted about was a, kind of like a throwback to, I guess it was 13 years ago now. That was the type of job that I would often do, a creative tech job. So that was for a client, a corporate client who wanted this weird experience, weird in the sense that I loved, you know, weird for a corporate uh, atmosphere. But it was for a retail store and they wanted to make a sound experience using vintage British rotary phones, the kind that you dial with your finger you, you turn the dial and it makes that beautiful sound. And when you dialed a number, you would get a different unexpected noise would play out of the handset. So I had to take apart the old rotary phone and hack it to detect what number was dialed and have a sound chip inside with a little microcontroller would play the sound through the speaker and the handset. And it was a lot of fun and a great gig, a great job. But it, it was also the type of thing I did all the time where it wasn't really my creative direction, it wasn't my concept, it was something I was being paid for, it had to be delivered in a certain way um, with certain aesthetic and certain values. And uh, so I was just giving my creative energy away. Of course, I was being paid for it, but those types of things, I have no regrets about them, they're really fun. Every project I took, I took it because I knew it would teach me something new, it would be an excuse to do something I hadn't done before something that would aid me in my studio practice. But I started doing less and less of those and more and more stuff that was either purely technical, not creative at all, or 
not related, you know, whatsoever to have a separate, you know, support my regular life. On this podcast, we, we like to talk about that intersection between art and technology and, and actually reading your bio, you talk quite a lot about that, but also specifically that that interaction between technology and humanity and where the crossover is and how that is changing over time. Can you tell me a bit about, you know, that interest and some of those those ideas that connect maybe some of your work? Yeah, that's a that's a, a huge topic and a fascinating one. And it's one that is unfolding under our feet faster and faster. So it's it's quite slippery in a way. One of the things that interests me most about this interrelation between human and technology is of course the tech itself is is fascinating and quasi magical and just astonishing on a, on a daily basis although we get used to it very quickly the way that it fascinates us its seduction is particularly interesting to me because i think we often allow it to control our lives a little too much and th this is not from the perspective of a luddite who's skeptical about the benefits of technology i think it's amazing if watched carefully and used carefully. But I think it can mislead us in a way to see things that we're not seeing. This is totally explicit in something like VR, for example, like you put on goggles and you, you feel like something is real, but it's not. That's, it's still relatively obvious to us, but it's not going to be relatively obvious for long as the resolution and fidelity improves. And needless to say, people's obsession with the, the virtual world in the sense of uh, social media and everyone's engagement in platforms that have actually superseded their engagement with the real world. Uh, people don't think of that as virtual reality because it's like on a normal computer, it's two-dimensional, it's using text and photos, but it is a type of virtual reality. It's not the reality we live in, but it's one that simulates lots of aspects of it. And we mistakenly react to it as if it were reality quite often. And so I think that that obviously can be quite dangerous. There's good in it too. It just, it just needs to be watched very carefully. And in my own work, I don't try to make overt political statements. I think that there's a lot of important political statements to be made about those issues and many others that are, that are adjacent to it. But I think that there are other manner of critiquing politically and ethically that are better and stronger than one individual artist making something, which often is talking to an audience that already knows about this and is aware of it. So I think those things are very important, but I think journalists and activists and authors, for example, are, do a much better job of it than I could. So I try to create things that are more subtle and that combine both the positive and the negative or the unsettling together into one because it's it's always a gray area and the gray area is more interesting. Creating like an interactive experience where you see something that you think is real, but then you realize it's not. Uh, like, for example, a kind of virtual shadow piece called Perceptio Lucis that I made a while back. I can't remember, six, seven years ago, eight years ago. It was a simple shape on the floor, a cube, actually, in the first version, a physical cube in a dark room with a white spotlight on it. But when you approached it, the spotlight started moving around as if the light was coming from your own body. 
So if you moved to the side, the light would shift side to side. If you moved backwards, the light would expand, the circle would expand. If you move forwards, it would contract, and you would see the shadow of the cube also move around as if the light was coming out of you. But if you looked around you or above you, there's no light moving around. It wasn't like an advanced robotic spotlight system with something like that. It, in fact, was just a video projection from the ceiling that had a virtual object of the same geometry, simple cube, overlaid exactly on the real cube. And what looked like a spotlight was actually just a computer rendering a white circle and calculating the shadow of this virtual object and adjusting the shadow and the light, or the way it was rendering this illusion of light, drawing this white circle on the ground, according to where you were in the room, using a motion sensor on the ceiling. So that kind of thing is not making any overt critique of anything. It's just saying things are not what they seem, first of all. And then when you start to figure it out, it doesn't mean that you're done with the experience. Like, oh, I figured it out, and you wave your hands around and you leave, like many interactive art experiences are guilty of that, I think, this kind of hand-waving phenomenon. But instead, hopefully, we'll have you think about how does my perception work normally? Why do I normally accept the things that I see? How do I know what's physically real and isn't, especially in a world where the simulation is becoming more and more convincing? And what does it mean that my body is changing this point of view but it's combining, it's not just a video game, which is all virtual, it's combining with the physical world. So there's, there's the virtual laid on top of the physical. You are actually seeing light and shadow. That's not an illusion. However, it moving around as if it were a spotlight, that is an illusion. And you are actually seeing the shadow of a cube, but the cube is real, but the shadow isn't. And so I just like making people think about these things but hopefully in a way that is engaging and accessible to anybody in the beginning and has deeper philosophical ideas for those who care to think about it, but doesn't pretentiously exclude anybody who doesn't. You mentioned earlier that your background is in philosophy. Do you think that has quite a big impact on your work? Yeah, I think it, I think it does. Not in everything I make, but certainly in that piece I just mentioned, for sure. I think it was more common in my earlier work because I was younger and more excitable. <laughs> and, um, uh, and I love trying to layer those, those ideas in. So that piece is one of many where ideas that I'd studied in, in, and thought about philosophically kind of infiltrated their way into the work. But it was always important to me, unlike when I was writing in academia, to make it accessible, to, to create a layered experience. Meaning, as I said, first layer, anyone can get something out of. And then there's like a second layer where then you start to realize, oh, it's this, or it makes you think about X and Y. And then maybe there's a third layer where if you have read something, you're like, oh, I, I see this reference. Or in the case of that piece, if you had studied the history of enlightenment and the philosophical idea of idealism and subjectivity, you might think about those. But if you don't think about those, it doesn't impair or block you from experiencing things. In more recent work, some of those concerns are still there. But I've also started making bigger public work where there's a different context, there's a different aim and a different audience. And so you have to or one should respond to that and not always try to kind of sideways shovel in more complex philosophical ideas if it's not appropriate. So I think less so recently, 
but I don't have any rule. You know, it's just what, if I'm thinking about something and making something, it comes to me and I follow it and experiment with it and often reject it. But what it could be about is sort of unknowable. It doesn't always relate to my past work. Coming on to, to some of your recent work then. So uh, can you tell me a little bit about Heart Squared and, and what it is? Yeah, so uh, Heart Squared is a public art installation that was installed in the middle of Times Square in New York last year for a little over a month. Uh, it was a collaboration between Modu Architecture and myself. Modu is a, is a small architecture studio also based in Brooklyn. And the piece was commissioned by an organization called Times Square Arts, which does this annual competition called the Times Square Heart every year. I think this is the 12th year. This year was curated by the Cooper Hewitt Design Museum, which is part of the Smithsonian. And the challenge every year of this competition is to make a work of public art in the heart of New York City, this X intersection of Times Square, which is one of the busiest intersections in the world, that references what you think or and what you want people to think is the heart of New York. So it has it, the heart is the central theme. It's about what New York City represents, diversity, inclusivity, love, these universal values that especially diversity and inclusivity that New York City is, is it's really part of the heart of what makes the city what it is. And the hard part is how do you make something that's not just a heart because who cares? You can make a giant heart in the middle of Times Square and it has to appeal, of course, to everybody, people from all over the world who speak every possible language of every age. Millions and millions of people come through Times Square every month, not during coronavirus, but this was just before COVID hit. So it was a really interesting challenge to make something that references a heart, but isn't just explicitly and obviously a heart. So we ended up making a 10 foot high cubic steel grid. It's painted in three different colors that has a very airy and lightweight feel. The rods are very thin and it's actually like 99% air, this whole structure, but it's quite strong because it's steel rod. And its cubic volume references the anatomical shape of the heart, the organ inside the body. But it's so abstracted and kind of cubically expressed that you wouldn't know right away. It's, it's more like the inspiration for and derivation for the form. It also has hundreds of mirrors on its front face that are all tilted in different directions. And they reflect the environment around it, which in the case of Times Square is not just millions of people, but also insane architecture, skyscrapers and billboards and just, you know, trillions and trillions of, of super bright pixels streaming down. So it really uses the environment as an ingredient by using these reflections. The special part of it is that hidden inside all of these mirrored squares is a shape that you only see if you stand in one particular spot. And when you stand in that spot, which is around 10 feet away from the, from the sculpture, then all of the angles of the mirrors reflect either the billboards and buildings and people or the little pieces of sky that are in between all the skyscrapers, even in 
Times Square in central Manhattan, finding these little pieces of sky. And all of these reflection angles were all computationally aligned so that when a viewer is standing in this one spot, you see a giant bitmoji heart, a pixelated heart shape in the reflections. The inside of the heart are all of these mirror pixels that are the environment and the, and the billboards, buildings, people. And the outside of it is only the sky reflected. So basically, we turned the mirrors into pixels as a kind of, you know, sly reuse of the environment. There's nothing technological in it whatsoever. There was a lot of technology involved in the design process. But the actual thing is just mirrors and steel and all the mirrors are angled the exact right directions. That's a great video on your website, actually, of it. And you can kind of get a sense of what it would be to kind of interact with it in terms of walking past it or getting closer to it. And and obviously the angles of those mirrors change and therefore the shape of it changes. It It's a really interesting example of that relationship between that physical thing and its wider environment. Yeah, it's a, it's a quite simple strategy, but it's really amazing and fun in person, even for me and for my collaborators in Modu who, who designed it and, and, you know, we built it. Uh, and it still felt magical to us. It's kind of like this kaleidoscopic effect as you're walking around it all because they're all tilted in different directions. This is reflections and the blinking lights that are all moving in different directions. And then as you step into that final spot, suddenly it all coheres and it has this kind of, you know, like uh, what they call like a catharsis moment. Not that anyone's falling down, clutching their chest, but certainly an aha moment at the, at the very least. And we made a conscious decision not to tell people where the spot was, but instead to rely on people finding it for themselves. And even more importantly, to talk to each other, strangers, to say, to, to explain what it was to people or to say, Watch what happens when you walk over there or try backing up and see what happens. And we, we really stayed out of it, so to speak. And that was also really satisfying as an artist to see how the public was interacting with it and to see people discovering this, the shape for themselves and, and sharing it with each other and talking with people that they didn't know. That was a really important part of the work. And of course, in Times Square... Any two people standing next to each other most likely are from different countries and have different native languages, just statistically speaking, because of the incredible diversity of visitors to that space. So, yeah, that was just a really beautiful, very simple, but beautiful aspect of the work. Did you know how it would turn out with some of those angles? Because I guess until you put it there, you can't be sure what, what that's going to look like. Yeah, so that's a great question. And the answer is, we had a pretty good idea, but we didn't really know until we made it. Uh, so we were given a 3D model of Times Square by the city, by New York City, part of the organization that oversaw the project. So we had a very detailed 3D model of Times Square. And so we placed our sculpture at the exact coordinate it would be in real life, and then 3D modeled and simulated for months the reflections of every single angle. So we actually made software where we could pick points in 3D space that we wanted each mirror to reflect. So I would pick, I want sky here between this building and I want this part of this billboard and this part of this building and this part five feet in front and two feet to the right where someone might be standing, etc. And our software would reverse calculate the angle of the mirror in both axes in order to reflect that particular spot 
when seen from the so-called sweet spot. So all of that was done in software in 3D simulation. And then we built the whole thing in, in the shop, but not in Times Square. So we aligned all the mirrors how we thought they're supposed to be, but you still don't know. Then we brought everything to Times Square the night before the install, built the whole thing, and located the center of the sculpture at the exact point within one inch of where it was in our software simulation. And then we stepped back and said, okay, how close does the real world correspond to the 3D model? We knew it wasn't going to be exact, but we thought it would be decent. And it was in fact decent, not perfect, but good enough that we could see right away and I was panicking, believe you me. I, I was, you know, it was like five degrees outside the middle of the winter, the middle of the night, and I was pouring sweat because it had to be done by the morning when it would open to the public and it was a big ceremony. So I was nervous, but it was close enough that then we could go and tweak each one. So our fabrication team was climbing all over the sculpture and we were shouting out instructions and, and adjusting the angles, you know, like a fifth of a degree on this axis, one degree up, two degrees down or whatever. So we went through every single mirror in person and just slightly adjusted them and it all worked. I wanted to ask you about the disconnected chandelier and for you to explain a bit about that work. Cause I think I know you mentioned before that there's not necessarily you're not always making a comment on technology, but actually maybe this one, there is some commentary in there. Yeah, that's an excellent observation. Despite what I said, this that particular piece does have a very overt comment. So it's called the, the disconnect chandelier with a slash between dis and connect, playing on the idea of sometimes needing to disconnect in order to connect with people and with ourselves. And it is a work that, like a lot of my work actually, is kind of half in the art world, half in the design world. This particular piece is maybe probably more in the design world, usually was thought of as speculative design, although in this case, it's not speculative. We actually built it and it works. So the basic concept is everyone these days in the quote unquote developed world has a cell phone and has a different degree of addiction to it. In some cases, severe enough to be actually labeled as, a, as an addiction disorder. In other cases, with the average adult you kind of feel like you're addicted. You're, you're not like a crack addict, but it's pretty bad. You reach for it constantly. You look at it constantly. You have trouble not looking at it for more than an hour. And more importantly, it interferes with us being present in our own lives, present with other people who are sitting at the same table and also even present with ourselves. We've kind of lost the ability to be alone, to spend time by ourselves thinking or, or reading or doing anything. So this piece is in the form of a design object, a, a chandelier in this case, but instead of projecting just light, it also projects a sphere of presence or digital silence that allows us to be present. And it does that by using antenna instead of bulbs, instead of light bulbs. And the antenna are broadcasting noise in the frequency spectrum that is used by our cell phones and our Wi-Fi internet. So for people who sit underneath the chandelier, your phone just doesn't connect to the internet. It just doesn't work. But if you walk outside of that sphere, it works again. 
the technical concept is nothing new. Cell phone jammers have been around for a long time. There are these big, ugly devices. That, well, some of them are small, too, depending on what range you want to jam. But they're kind of like industrial tech objects that have indiscriminate range and are illegal. So what we wanted to do was to provoke not just conversation about it, but also the current laws around this by creating an object that's beautiful in its own right, but that can silence digital signals without you needing to do anything and only in a very limited range. So it's only in a private space in your own home and doesn't affect anybody else. There are jammers, of course, that have already been around, but they are, are ugly and also jam way too far. There are Faraday cages. You can, you can take apart a room in your house and line it with conductive mesh, and that will block signals passively. Very old technology, but just no one is going to do that. It's cost prohibitive for one and also destroys your house. There are apps that people have on their phones to limit their use of their own phones, which the irony of that doesn't need to be stated. But there's all sorts of ways, including just turning your phone off. But the problem is we don't turn our phones off. We feel like we should, but we don't. And the only way that we can overcome how seductive and addictive this technology is, and it's been expertly designed to be this way, the only way that the average citizen can overcome this is if it's totally effortless. And so we made this object that does just that. You just sit underneath it, and that's all you need to do. And, you know, if it, it, we imagine it around like a dining table for families or sitting with friends or sitting by yourself. Um, of course, it could be in anything. It could be in a table. It could be in a sculpture. It could be in a carpet or something like that. But we started with the chandelier because it has a history of designating this kind of quasi-formal space in the average home where like the, the kind of sacredness of, the, of, of eating together as a family, sitting underneath the chandelier in a dining room. For example, um, most people these days don't really care about the formality aspect, but they should care about the importance of paying attention to each other, listening to each other while you're eating, for example. So it's just like a, a starting point. And yeah, it's been a lot of fun to make. And we just finished the first version of it. Now we're working on a second version that is more technologically advanced using a custom antenna design that we're working with uh, engineers on. It looks really impressive. And it's, it's a great concept. Do you have plans to exhibit or is that, see, we're recording this. I don't know what it's quite like uh, for you in Brooklyn. Uh, we're, we're in a complete lockdown pretty much at the moment in the UK. Is there an opportunity to exhibit anytime soon? We're, we're having discussions. So this, this piece is a collaboration between myself and uh, an artist named Benjamin Lozato and also uh, our engineer, Dan Gross, who's working on the technical part of it. So the, the three of us are, are discussing this together, along with some galleries who are interested in it. We also have a, a legal team that's called BLIP, which is a part of Brooklyn Law School, the policy, it's a pol what's called a policy incubator. They work on controversial legal issues related to technology and broadcast law. So altogether, we're discussing how could this be exhibited without getting us in trouble or a gallery in trouble. So we've had multiple museums and galleries interested in showing it, but they're quite nervous about it because it is technically illegal. Part of the work is arguing that it shouldn't be illegal by displaying the legal justification for what the laws used to state 
which date back, you know, to the 1930s from FM radio, basically, and how desperately they're in need of being updated because of a societal crisis, frankly, in, in mental health and privacy to have these networks be utterly ubiquitous to the point where our phones almost never even leave our body and they're always on. So we know that it's illegal and we think it's worth some risk to exhibit. Whether a gallery is going to be comfortable with that, we don't know yet. So a lot of curators are excited about it and a lot of lawyers are not excited about it. <laughs> so uh, we'll see, we don't know what's gonna happen. Are you, are you ever going to get a lawyer excited for <laughs> something with risk? Well, the, the legal team that's collaborating with us, they are excited because they, they want to file a petition against the FCC, which is the American Federal Broadcast Commission, Communications Commission. So they're very excited to challenge the existing law. But the lawyers who are in charge of not getting their clients in trouble are running in the opposite direction as fast as possible. The chance of a gallery being prosecuted for showing an artwork is very small, but it's, it's definitely possible. And one of the interesting things here is in this case, and we, we did legal research into this, the right for free expression does not supersede this law. The law is so ironclad to protect the business interests of the companies that license the, the spectrum and also uh, because of emergency communication, 911 in the U.S., it's a potential felony, even if it's you're arguing that it's your right to free expression. So it's a quite thorny and controversial subject and one that is long overdue for being reexamined. I guess reflecting on some of the things you've talked about and the works that you've, you've worked on, all of them, it sounds like there is there is an element of collaboration. There's, you know, you're, in that example, you talked about a couple of different people you're working with, or often it might be a, you know, the architecture firm you're working with, Heart Squared. Talk to me a bit about that, you know, how you find collaboration. It, often we talk about it on this podcast because you've got artists that, in reality, don't, some artists that don't really have much of an understanding about how technology works, but they're really interested in some of the concepts that they work with technology. Others that are at a very different end of the spectrum where they're, you know, they're, they're real coders and that's their kind of background and, and they're trying to, to use it. But collaboration therefore comes in different forms, especially in this world. Yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting question because depending on what you're trying to make, you might need to collaborate. And like in the example you gave, if you don't have a specific technical expertise, usually for the things that I make, uh, I believe very strongly in making everything myself. I mean, everything from woodworking to circuitry to soldering to programming to LEDs to whatever. I believe that you should know how to make it yourself. Like we talked about in the beginning of the podcast, that the act of making something can often improve the, the ideas. However, as my career has progressed, sometimes you want to make something that is bigger than you can do by yourself. And sometimes you want to work with people who have an expertise in something that you don't know anything about. So I really enjoy the opportunity to collaborate where I can. I don't ever set out with a specific work to think this should be a collaboration or it shouldn't. And in fact, these recent pieces are collaborations, but the, the majority of my work, even over the last 15 to 20 years, has just been done on my own. 
But making bigger things or making more hyper-specific technically things brings in these opportunities for collaboration that I love. Just makes you think in a different way. It's just a lot of fun to have other people bringing ideas to the table and, and arguing with you and debating different ideas. And, and you help each other when you get stuck on something, that kind of thing. So, yeah, it's a, it's a lot of fun. Collaboration on the, on the face of it. Brilliant. Let's all collaborate. In practice, sometimes if you've got quite a strong artistic vision of what you're trying to get to, but you need that help to get there. And then someone else might come and go, that, yeah, yeah, that's great. We should also do this. And you go, no, 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 <laughs> just do the thing. How, how yeah. do you find that kind of that, that relationship, especially if a lot of a lot of the work that you've done has been kind of on your own? You're working solely to get to that very specific vision. Yeah, well, I'm sure my collaborators would tell you that I'm a stubborn pain in the ass. I mean, sometimes you really just have to stand up for what you think is the right choice. But often, you know, if you're working with experienced people, as I have, they're well aware of the of the perils of collaboration. And I think at the outset, you try to you try to define your individual spheres of influence. So, you know, you're working on this part and the other person isn't. And the other person is working on that part and you are not. And then you check in every week or whatever and get feedback and criticism and try to remain open to what everyone says. But then you go back and you keep working on your part and they go back and keep working on their part. I think that uh, having some clear separation as well as good communication and being open to criticism is essential. And if you have those things, then it works well. If you're both stirring the same pot, it can get very messy. I'm also currently working on a series of light sculptures that I've been working on on and off for the past two years, or actually quite longer than that now. These are three-dimensional forms that, at least in the first versions, are, are wall-hanging sculptures that protrude from the wall a bit, but are presented like a kind of 2.5D sculpture. And... They are made from what appear to be thin wooden beams that are about two inches around. So the surprising part of it is uh, what seems to be a kind of twisting three-dimensional intertwining of these wooden beams actually somehow magically light up from inside and display different animated patterns shining through the wood from inside of what seems like solid wood. Of course, it becomes quickly apparent that it's not solid wood because there's light inside it somehow, but it's not projected onto it, which a lot of people think at first. It's actually hollowed out with LED strips inside and a kind of seamless veneer such that the illusion is that the solid object is glowing. And I'm quite interested in merging technology with unusual materials, specifically natural materials like wood. I just personally find it beautiful and unexpected to see wood grain that's also glowing with this synthetic light. Of course, conceptually, it also says a lot about how what we think of as traditional material properties don't apply anymore because there's so much advance in material science. And also what we think of as being real, as I mentioned earlier, is not always things what they seem. This is a case where you're seeing something and it's actually not an illusion, it is actually glowing, and it is actually glowing from inside. It's not a projection, but it's just through a very unusual treatment, very unusual craftsmanship procedure to make this 
this wood have this kind of magical property. So the first one that I made, they're both called wood, wood slash light. Uh, the first one, which is called Array, it was a parallel series of these wooden beams between the wall and the ceiling. Uh, that was a private commission um, that was about 40 feet long, so quite, quite large. And these beams looked kind of like a V, kind of like skeletal, like, like ribs of a boat, for example, basically like a geometric array of these lines. They're all at slightly different angles, so it had this kind of twisting progression to it. But when it was activated, you saw these light patterns display across all of the beams at once in these uh, organized patterns that ranged from very subtle, everything glowing the same color, to quite active, you know, using emergent patterns of, of blobs and organic-looking colors racing around. The second version of it, which I'm almost finished is called Tangle, is a series of these 2.5D pieces where the basic form of the sculpture, the material, these wooden beams that glow from inside, that part is the same. However, the form is much more complex. And instead of being parallel lines at different angles, instead, it's one continuous line turning at different angles and intersecting itself and hanging off the wall. And again, these patterns are displaying inside it or through it or from within it. And each one in the series will be based on patterns from living systems that are always in flux. So, for example, the first one, which is I'm finishing now, uses footage from under the ocean, underwater, aquatic life and coral and uh, other living things. Basically, you can't tell this when you look at it, but it uses actual video footage taken underwater and then maps that into this three-dimensional wooden shape. So... The part that interests me conceptually about it, I mean, I think like it's, of course, really cool to look at, which is great. Light is inherently fascinating to human beings, you know, going back to our evolutionary moments discovering fire. So I think it has an inherent fascination, of course. But conceptually, the deeper part of it is about how these living systems appear to always be changing and never repeating, which is something that software is not particularly good at, but nature is. And I want to make the piece not show off that it's being simulated in software and also not to show what nature can do. Just going under the ocean is going to be better than anything an artist can make. I mean, nature is incredible. But instead trying to, to focus and draw attention to and present to a, a viewer something that is eerily in between these two worlds, which is a theme throughout a lot of my work, something that's between simulated and real that's and again a material that's between solid and not solid that is between being illuminated from without and illuminated from within that's kind of unplaceable and if you watch the the patterns animating on the sculpture or from within it you can't tell that it's the ocean necessarily but you can definitely tell that it has a kind of an unfolding blobby washy kind of movement that evokes water and the ocean because it is directly derived from it and it also you don't maybe know how it was derived technically but i think most people probably won't be able to tell or at least will question whether it's programmed meaning it's made by code or whether it's from something real uh, which is what i want i want it to be in between that i want it to seem more technological than nature but more natural than programmed, more organic than things that are programmed normally are. 
Thank you for listening to today's interview with the wonderful Eric Foreman. If you are interested in finding out more about Eric, his studio and his work, here's how to get in contact with him. Uh, Well, you can look at my website, which is ericforeman.com, E-R-I-C-F-O-R-M-A-N. Those of you who are a fan of the American TV show, That 70s Show, will know that that ruined my Google ability for the rest of time because the main character has the same name as me. But uh, ericforman.com, you can see all of my past work from the past 20 years. And my Instagram, which is ericformanstudio, has uh, pretty frequent updates where I show not only what I'm working on, but also behind the scenes of how I make things, the process and craft and tools involved. There you go. Thank you again for listening all the way through today's episode. Next month, to celebrate our 50th episode, I'll be speaking with my co-host, Richard F. Adams. We haven't done that since the 25th episode, which was at least two years ago. So we'll have a chat about what we've been up to in the meantime and our plans for the future of this podcast. It should be great. To make sure you don't miss it, why not take a moment to subscribe to this show right now? Go on. I'll give you a moment. Did you do it? Let's hope so. While you are there, you can also give us a five-star rating to help boost us up the podcast charts. So I'll wrap up today's episode there. Thank you again for listening and to Eric Fullman for being interviewed. We will be back again next month. Until then, take very good care of yourself. Goodbye. Design thinking has exploded into the workplace of the 21st century, putting humans at the heart of design. Or does it? Isn't it just the post-it note workshops? More importantly though, where did it come from? How did it become such a massive industry? And where on earth is it going? Is design thinking what is taught in design schools? And can it be used as a philosophy for the future? Find out more as we, Richard Adams and Sam Fry, explore these ideas with experts in the field on our first Technique mini-series about design thinking. Subscribe to this podcast so that you don't miss an episode.